Welcome, everybody, to this quick-fire lightning round special midweek episode of Depolarize. I've got Robbie Evans here with me. Uh, we're going to try and thread a little bit of a needle here. This is not a news show. I am not a pundit. And I'm trying not to be a guy who comments on the news and gives my reactions in real time. But there have been a lot of very legitimate questions that recent news has uncovered. And I've been chatting with people about this on the Facebook discussion group and with friends and whatnot. And especially scary are these recent claims from Trump that the election is rigged somehow. So I asked around and got some questions and we're going to do this lightning round with Robbie. I'm going to throw a bunch of stuff at him. He is an amateur political expert and we're just going to kind of do our best. Now, I don't know how much depolarization this will lead to, but my hope is that we can dismantle some baseless claims both on the right and the left because the kind of rigged conspiracy type language is coming both from Trump supporters and Bernie supporters right now. And there are right and left versions of this kind of thinking. Next Monday morning, we'll have a regular episode coming up in your podcast app. And in addition, I'm going to be doing midweek episodes up until the election, but those will be standard format episodes. So let's get into this. Robbie, why don't you give us a little background? Where'd you go to school? Yada, yada, yada. Well, I grew up with you, as, as you well know. Um, I went to Stanford for college. I got an econ degree there. Um, out of there, I worked in consulting. I spent some time in the kind of asset management, not quite hedge fund, but like that kind of world, like managing a bunch of money for actually for Stanford University um, during the Wall Street crash. Um, and in general, politics stuff. I've had the politics bug for about 15 years. I was paying for paywalled content before I could drink. Yeah, before you were 21, you were like paying 10 bucks a yeah, month for, I'll pay for New York that Times. Washington Post or whatever it was. And I grew up kind of conservative. I was I entered school pretty conservative. Um, I left school much more progressive, but I feel like that's kind of nice now because I can understand the point of view of both sides and I sort of read across the spectrum to get a point of view from the far right, the medium right, the center left and the the liberal left um because you know there really is no one kind of um, all you can eat one-stop shop for objective news anymore. You have to kind of, uh, do it as we go with, uh, consuming lots of viewpoints. Yeah. I want to get into that if we have time at the end yeah. on how to give oneself more balanced of a view of news, but suffice to say, we'll take your point for now that it's difficult. And yet you are someone who does that hard work. So thank you. I do. You're welcome <laughs> for doing that on our behalf. Okay. Let's start with some basics. What is the electoral college? How does it work? Yeah, so the Electoral College is basically when we founded this country 200 and some years ago, regular Joes were not considered necessarily informed enough to vote for the presidency. And so uh, we had e uh, a system of electors. Every state gets the same number of electors as they have uh, people in Congress. And they vote for the actual presidency. There's 538 votes, hence the 538 website. And so 270 is one more than half. And so to get 270 electoral college votes means you win. Virtually every state awards all their votes in one block. So you win California, you get a whole lot of votes all at once, even if you only had, you know, just more than half of the votes in California. So, and in general, uh, nowadays it's evolved to a system whereby the parties assign all their electors uh, as a group, and they will vote for the candidate of that party were that candidate to get the most votes on the ballot. Okay. So as a practical matter, um, everyone votes for their candidate, and then those votes are awarded in blocks based on the winner of each state. A lot of people are concerned that it's someone in the Electoral College voting and not them voting. What are the rules? What are the laws? Let's say... So Hillary will win Washington, and Washington has like 13 electoral college votes, I think. What happens? Those 13 people, are they bound by law to vote for Hillary if she wins the popular vote here? Um, I think saying bound by law is a stretch. It depends on the state. So it's like state-by-state state ca uh, case. And it's the, the party inside the state sent, tends to set the rules for their electors. Like they'll sign a pledge or whatever. Um, so I won't get into like the legality of it. I'll just say like, I'll be shocked. I'd be shocked if a single elector votes, uh, contra to what their party and their state would have voted for. 
Um, and so while every, every election cycle, we have this kind of like fever dream of like, what if somebody flips and votes against their party based on their conscience? And like, it never, ever happens. Like even in years where like the popular vote actually went one way and the electoral college went a different way, like in 2000 and Bush v. Gore, you know, there was this whole theory of like, what if some elector says, I will take a bullet from my party and I'll vote for the guy who won the popular vote. That never happens. It didn't even come close to happening. Uh, like even no one even considered Gore, it, frankly. Even when Gore beat Bush in the popular vote, nobody switched their electoral vote from what the state of their what their state voted for. Yeah, because like the the electors are picked through some kind of party process at the state level, and so these are like hardcore conservative or liberal party operatives. So the idea that they would abandon their own nominee would have to be some kind of extraordinary circumstances, and while. We can all agree that this year is already extraordinary. I don't know how many people who were chosen by the Republican Party, for example, which is a more obvious case, um, would abandon Trump to vote for some never-Trump conservative, especially given that most of those electors were picked after Trump became the nominee, and so the states kind of already vetted people to like pick, like to make, to have like a truth test, basically. So like, all right, you okay. will vote for our nominee. So I just I don't see the electoral college rebellion happening. So then, essentially. Your vote in California, say, for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, if she wins, your vote did count. It counted toward that majority in that state, and she will get those votes. There's basically 0% chance that your vote will be stolen from you by the Electoral College. Yeah, I mean, so everyone's vote counts. Even people live in, like, you know, heavy red or heavy blue states. They just count less, right? So, like, the, the practical reality is that a swing state voter in Ohio or Florida which has a, a different ratio of people to electoral college votes and also has a different mix of uh, party affiliations. Like some votes will be more valuable than others, but like every vote, will, every vote contributes in some way towards um, who gets the electoral college votes from that state. Before we get into the WikiLeaks actual dump and the scandals surrounding it, what have we learned about WikiLeaks? If you've been following the news over the last 18 months or so, what has come out about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange in that time? Okay, so WikiLeaks. Um, WikiLeaks began, I think, more than a decade ago as kind of a radical transparency organization that was fighting against Wall Street, big business, uh, governments that were all viewed as being too secretive. So they would release emails, uh, wire cables, all kinds of information that you could not get otherwise um, online to be like radically transparent. And this was initially controversial because it included things like troop movement plans or the names potentially of like CIA operatives abroad and it would like literally endanger yeah. lives. Um, but the, gen- the ethos kind of had, I mean, I understand it. Like the goals like to say like governments don't share enough information. So rather than trust them to share what they should share, we'll just make them share everything. And like they will deal with the consequences. Um, more recently, it seems like they've become embittered uh, and frustrated, in particular against America um, and the sort of American defense uh, and state mechanism. So, you know, the Obamas, the Clintons, probably the Bush family, um, because WikiLeaks is now on the run as more or less a criminal organization um, abroad. And so, why do you say that? Why do you say a criminal organization? Well, because like the things they're doing, if they were doing them on American soil, would be considered like massively felonious. You know, like so all the things that you hear about Hillary's emails, which is a handful of emails on a personal server that had potentially classified information, like they they trade in tens of thousands of those, but much more secretive and much more valuable and much more dangerous. So, like their their mission statement is to release information that is, by its very nature, damaging to nations and governments. So like. Okay. That's, I mean, I don't use the word treason word lightly, but you could you could make some high charges based on what they're doing. If some you know CIA operative got killed based on their announcements or if whatever, like it's definitely viewed at the government level as being not a good thing. But early on, it was kind of like a Robin Hood thing, almost like anonymous or something. Like, yeah. hey, they're giving information to the people. Yeah. What has changed over 10 years? Yeah. So I view anonymous today and WikiLeaks of 10 years ago as being somewhat similar. Anonymous has a bit more of like a populist activist bend to it, which is kind of fun sometimes, frankly. These days, it seems like WikiLeaks has become primarily an anti-American establishment. And in this election cycle, uh, because of the varying points of view that Trump and Clinton have with respect to things like Russia or foreign engagement abroad, 
it's become somewhat partisan in the election. And so WikiLeaks seems to be actively trying to campaign to bring down the Clinton campaign because they release tons of information about them, the DNC, the Clintons, uh, whatever, on a regular basis with no such release on the Trump side. And furthermore, this information, the US FBI now believes, is 100% certain in some cases that have come from Russian state-sponsored hackers. And so you have basically WikiLeaks as the, like, what do they call it in, like, the drug trade? They're, uh, they're the fence, right? They, they, they distribute the stolen goods. Okay. Um, and so, you know, Russia has state-sponsored hackers who steal some kind of information. It goes to WikiLeaks, this sort of, like, ostensibly independent international organization, and then they release it. And so what you have now is kind of like... It's like information laundering. Kind yeah, of. exactly. And so, and, and we'll get into the actual scandals later, but like one thing that sort of has made this pretty clear recently is that some of the documents they released in this latest round of, of leaks were pretty clearly doctored. And so they are not just taking things and then releasing them, but they are doctoring documents to look worse than they really were. And so that gives pretty clear evidence of like partisanship where it's not just saying, hey, people should know what the governments are doing. They're saying people should know what the governments are doing and we're going to tell you they're doing things that are bad. So you'll feel a certain way, even if those events may not actually be true. Right. So I remember a recent example. They had leaked an email from John Podesta's account where he was quoting a Newsweek article. And they removed the quotes to make it look like he was saying it himself. Yeah. So this article was like nine pages long. It was a feature article. And in the same way that if you ask me about some issue, I'll say, well, you know, on the one hand of this, but on the other hand of that, the article gave it's kind of like two paragraph, um, you know, here's the kind of uh, fair concerns about the Benghazi scandal with regards to the Clinton administration. And then it had eight pages saying, but it's way overblown and on all this jazz. They took that article, they pulled out that sort of, you know, on the other hand paragraph and tucked it into the email as though Clinton's campaign chief were saying it. So it looks like one of her highest advisors is saying, like, Benghazi is really a scandal and we're so lucky that no one's talking about it. When in reality, it was an article by somebody else that didn't even say that. So it was was like three degrees of separation from the truth. And so that became, and we only found out because that journalist was reading these leaked emails and goes, right, these words sound familiar. And he goes, wait a second, I wrote this like four years ago. And he pulls up his article and word for word, that's his quote. That's been assigned as like Podesta's own words. That particular instance is not leaking. That is misinformation. That's planting of evidence. Yeah. And this is kind of viewed like, so I follow some sort of like former Republican um, national security folks on Twitter. And like, they say this is the classic stage three of a Russian misinformation campaign and like an Eastern European elector like election. So first, you have kind of your populist candidate that you prop up who says it's all rigged and it's all a conspiracy. Like then you have kind of rumor mongering online and then you go from releasing like misframed real information um, like the DNC hack will get to. Like there's some real stuff there, but like how you view it as a matter of degree. You go from that to like stage three is saying, all right, like hit the gas for real. We're going to release not just real information with a certain spin, but information that itself is not real and then spin that even further. Wow. So there's like a style of, of Eastern European yeah. misinformation campaigning, like since yeah, the Stalin era, since the Putin era, really. I mean, because okay. Putin was a KGB operative. And so he like, I mean, he literally was a secret agent. Um, he was the guy that you know, James Bond was fighting against. So he has a playbook. Um, you know, we did this too. We rigged elections in the Central America, Middle East. Like, we all do it. Um, but they've become much more brazen about it. And in the modern era, it's harder to hide, frankly. Like, if we tried to pull off yeah. the Shah of Iran stunt in 2016, it'd be obvious. But in 1980, it wasn't. So, Okay, so let's look at what has been uncovered by WikiLeaks. Sure. Uh, can we just get a quick list of the real or supposed scandals and then we'll go through and talk about each one yeah and this is where like to be fair to your readers like so i am generally progressive i did a podcast hit where i was saying that i favor trump or favor oh, excuse me favor hillary <laughs> over trump slip, robbie favor hillary over trump by a large measure so i am biased um but and and i have found that if you read kind of like the sort of far right like kind of info wars truth out whatever blaze websites um the headline and the content of the articles is almost always wildly different. So if you read stuff on the WikiLeaks stuff, 
please, for the love of God, listener of this podcast, read the whole article. Read the actual excerpt of the email itself, not just the headline, because they're almost always like woefully wrong, right and left, frankly. Um, so what I've seen as far as scandals go, there's a couple things. Um, w- the most popular one at first was that she gave a bunch of talks to Wall Street a couple years ago, and they were like, the transcripts were secret, so Trump and everyone's like, why won't you release the transcripts? Like, what did you promise Wall Street? Was it like, elect me and I'll make you all, you know, rulers of the world forever, whatever? So yeah. those speeches are out now, and like, they're pretty boring. Um, to me, they sound like a standard center-left politician. Uh, the controversial things in there is... She had a whole line about how you have to pitch things one way privately and one thing publicly. So, like, you'd talk to the regulators and banks to do Dodd-Frank about doing things one way, and you explain it to the population in, like, a much simpler way, which, like, I guess that could be shocking to you. Like, to me, that is plainly obvious that we do deals one way internally and then kind of, like, announce them as a more simple version of that. And Um, she responded to that question at the second debate. Yeah, with kind of a crappy answer. (laughs) Oh, you didn't like her answer. I thought it was a little poor. Her answer was, yeah, like, you know, she was borrowing from Lincoln who had to do this. And that's true. Like, when Lincoln did all his work on the abolition movement, like, he had to negotiate all kinds of sort of secret backroom deals with various parties. But, like, you know, I think she just said, like, look, you know, Donald, you don't know how the politics works. You have to negotiate things in detail with give and take. And then publicly you give them a simple version. Like, that's just... That's how life really is. Um, you don't so have you didn't to make like it. That she kind of invoked Lincoln toward her side. I feel like it's kind of a cop out to say that. Well, you know, Abe Lincoln did this, and therefore it's okay. I think that. All right, we have depolarized. Yeah, yeah. we have two people I, on the left here criticizing our own candidate. That's I mean, great. I generally think that, I generally believe that voters are smarter than they are given credit for. Now, again, like I'm the guy who reads like a million words a year of politics, so like maybe I'm just projecting my own experience, but. Like, in general, when by the time the election happens, the average voter seems to know the vast majority of these issues. So, like, I yeah. think they're pretty, and especially in the internet age, people seem pretty informed. Like, setting aside folks that only get their information from, like, the far left or far right echo chamber, but, like, people who want to know things will generally know them. And so I was like, you don't have to call in Honest Abe's name. Just say, like... Big effing deal <laughs> and move on, you know. Okay, um, so we're not too worried about the Wall Street speeches. I was not too worried I about wasn't. Well, so, th- so okay. there is some content there that may alarm, like, your Bernie and Trump listeners. So, like, she was generally pro-trade, open borders, like, pro-TPP. None of these things to me are a surprise. Clinton is generally on the free trade globalism, you know, team. Yeah. Um, but she has walked some of that back uh, this campaign because... Uh, either she changed her mind or more likely she saw that, you know, all the Bernie guys were anti-trade and she compromised her position and moved back right. a little bit. So she has changed her position since then. So you can say, oh, she lied or she's lying now, whatever it is. Um, there is some evidence of a change there, which, again, to me was not shocking at all. But you can read that as being some kind of nefarious action. Does it matter to you whether or not she genuinely has changed her mind or if she is just playing politics towards the Bernie crowd. Like, is there actually a difference at the end of the day in your mind? There's a difference. Um, I think that because at the end of the day, once someone is elected, they will generally follow their own convictions and they might pick one or two items that they will kind of do a favor to their, their team for, even if it goes against their own personal points of view. But in general, presidents, I think, follow their own points of view. So does it matter that it changed your mind? This is the first of many answers where the my response will be, it kind of depends on what you want to believe, right? So if you want to believe the absolute worst in somebody, you can choose to believe that. If you are like me and tend to say these guys are all more or less public servants or all more or less trying to do the best they can, like I'm not too bothered by it. I expect she'll still be generally pro-trade, but we'll walk back a little bit based on the party's hesitance on TPP and stuff. For me, like I'm a pragmatist, so like I tend to say, like I would love it if, let's say she wins, like President Clinton and Speaker Ryan get together and say, all right, he says here's a thing that matters a ton to conservatives, here's some other thing that matters not that much to us, and she says, well that thing matters only a little bit to you, matters a ton to me as a liberal, and I don't care much about the thing that you care about a lot, like. Let's just both get the thing that we like a lot and give yeah. the thing we don't like much. Like that never happens anymore. But to me, that's fine. That's actually great. And so if she wants to move a little bit on TPP um, to go somewhere else, like I have no problem with that because I'm interested in like the overall efficacy of governance, not 
of like winning 100 points to zero, which is the current kind of MO of most of Congress is like we must win every battle or we'll simply not play ball at all. All right. So that's the first one. The Wall Street speeches. There's two more. Uh, The second one has to do with Saudi Arabia. So what's that scandal? Yeah. So there was an email that said something to the effect of um, we should use this is like more for her job as secretary of state and not for the campaign per se. But says something like, um, we should use all of our diplomatic and state resources to put pressure on Saudi Arabia to stop helping out uh, radicalized Islamic groups um, like Al-Qaeda in Iraq, aka ISIS, um, in the region. And a lot of folks were like, holy crap, Like, the Clinton administration knows that Saudi Arabia is supporting terrorist groups and did nothing to stop it. And also she was getting money from them for her foundation. It's like a whole different issue. And like, there's a lot of messiness there for sure. Um, but my read is a couple things. One is what they're mostly talking about is that Saudi Arabia has been for the last couple of years indiscriminately arming groups that will take on the Assad regime um, and groups that will attack their own sovereignty. And so when you give weapons to everyone who is the enemy of your enemy, like you'll end up giving weapons to folks who are generally like bad guys. Yeah. Um, and so that happens. And we've done like we armed Saddam Hussein in the eighties. We armed Bin Laden and the, the Afghani, you know, resist, resist, resistance against Soviets in the eighties. Like we do this all the time, and it's a it's a problem for us as a country. So like the arming of people did not strike me as all that rare. Uh, and then the second concern is like, how can we maintain relations with Saudi Arabia in light of this? Is like, look, we've everyone who follows politics closely knows that like the the U.S. Saudi alliance is somewhat hypocritical frankly like they are a partner of ours they have been for a long long time but they are terrible in human rights they are extremely uh, conservative theocratic government and so it's always been kind of an odd bedfellows type deal and so like i just look at it and say i don't know what you'd have the state department do like they can't just call out the entire country and like go to war against saudi arabia or like abandon their biggest ally in the middle east and so, like, the Middle East has always been thorny. It will be until the end of time. It has been since, you know, the biblical era. Um, and so, to me, that was evidence of just, like, you know, it's a pretty messed up place. And good, the good guys do bad things. And some of the bad guys are the good guys. And, you know, it was just kind of like a peek behind the curtain. And, like, guess what? Like, Middle Eastern politics is messy. Like, shocker. So, if you're going to criticize this recent information about Clinton as Secretary of State and Saudi Arabia... Essentially, you're just criticizing the fact that the United States has such a close relationship with Saudi Arabia in general. Yeah, it's, I think it's generally kind of like, how could you uh, continue to work with these groups uh, knowing the things that you know? But every single secretary of state has worked with Saudi Arabia for the last, what, 30 years? Yeah, and that's why the response that I would say is like, what else would you do? It's very easy, and this gets into that kind of anti-Trump angle, but like, it's very easy to say, I would have done whatever it is. It's like, okay, yeah. well, give me something better, right? Um, because it's one thing to talk to your friend or your neighbor, and they don't have to have a better idea. But if you want to run the country, you better have a better alternative. You need alternative. to have a better idea. Yeah, um, right. You can't just sit there and say, like, it was a bad idea to do, like, oh, we're failing in Syria or failing in Libya. It's like, well, guess what? Like, I'm not sure that you could succeed in Libya, like, period, full stop. So it's like, what's the minimal degree of failure because all the options suck, right? Okay, so third WikiLeaks story is dnc and bernie so summarize for us what we found there yeah so now back to rigging elections um and oddly enough you know this has been trumpeted more by uh, the trump campaign than by bernie's crew so this didn't shock me but like there were times when the dnc the democratic national committee was communicating with the clinton campaign in a way that gave them an advantage that the bernie campaign didn't have they appear to have gotten some debate questions, um, or at least the general thesis of those questions, a little early um, to help her prep for the debates. And it was also widely believed all along that they were scheduling debates to be on the worst possible time slots and nobody would watch them <laughs> because they believed that yeah. if Hillary just like ran the clock out, she'd win. And giving Bernie like a Sunday night major airtime would give him a platform to gain ground. Right. So you can absolutely believe, and it's, I think it's pretty obvious that the committee was tilted against uh, Sanders. That doesn't shock me at all that Clintons have been the most powerful family in that party since the, the Kennedys uh, for 30 years. Like, so, like, surprise, surprise. Like, they got, you know, better rules. I'm not shocked at all. You know, Bernie wasn't even a Democrat until recently. He was a Democrat caucusing independent. 
And so, yeah, he had a battle, and, like, that sucks for him, and it's not fair. Uh, but it's, to me, like, the information we got this week was not that different from things we learned months ago on that front. What challenges did Bernie face as, like, a newcomer to the proper Democratic Party coming into that primary season? Most people didn't think he had a chance to win. Turns out he got pretty close. But what were the natural obstacles for Bernie, totally unrelated to any sort of collusion at the DNC? Yeah. Well, first off, you just don't have the access to the machine that the Clintons had. And so, you know, especially primary politics, it's done at a state level, a local level. You have these organizing parties all over the country who are people who are really into their party. They're, you know, the, the Wachasaw County Democratic Party, you know, leadership is like the most hardcore Democrat in that county. And they are naturally going to be more Clinton-facing folks. So, like, the rules are made by Clinton folks. The caucuses are going to be organized by Clinton folks. Uh, he was definitely coming to someone else's party, no pun intended, to play ball. And so, when you have that kind of barrier, like, no one's going to fight for you with the rules committee to change the rules. No one's going to, like, advocate for a straight-up fair fight on a level playing field with no um, inherent advantage because, like, Frankly, most party politics is built around inherent advantages. You know, Trump is the outlier here. Like in most years, it'd be a Rubio versus Jeb Bush campaign because they're the right. the party wonder boys, and that's how it's been for a long, long time. You know, these people are mostly preordained. Um, that's the party system. Bernie was not preordained, so he had to. And also, just like as far as institutional advantages, he didn't have the donor base. So, so Hillary can go to these massive donors. Yes, some yeah. Wall Street, some in tech, some in real estate, just wherever there are rich folks, frankly. And Bernie's out there getting his $28 from, you know, Jane and John Doe citizen. And so he had to overcome all kinds of like general institutional biases to get as far as he did. Now, there's obviously something really beautiful about the Bernie campaign in that sense of getting money from average people. I don't know if you're okay with admitting this, but you contributed to his campaign multiple times twice. as a citizen. Twice, twice. I did. Yep. We texted about this. And let's say you're someone who's sitting here going, what you just described to me, Robbie, sounds awful. Like it's ridiculous that these same families can have power over such long periods and that someone who really represents the views of the people, the odds are so stacked against him. I think that's a natural yeah. response. Yeah, totally. What, so, okay, so so that's obviously super legitimate. Is there a way to make that a reality? Is there a way to sort of dismantle, you know, if you want to call it the oligarchy or if you want to be less <laughs> rude, less, less yeah. you know, you could just say entrenched power yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so I think that, like, frankly, like, so yeah, I gave money to Bernie. Um, I think that Bernie is, without question, the most honest guy in the entire race of the 19 people who ran. He's a, a very impressive dude. You know, his policies sometimes are very far left, as democratic socialism is. But he was a, he's a really amazing guy. And I think that Bernie has played his entire campaign pretty much perfectly. Once it became clear he was going to not win, he turned his attention to taking his, you know, 44% of the vote or whatever it was, and saying, we will take that leverage that we have and we will try to change the rules of the party from the inside. I don't think that leaving the party and just saying, like, screw it, it's all rigged, I'm out, is going to help. Because all you're doing then is ceding control to those who are in the quote-unquote rigged system. When you have a, a big tent party, uh, you can change the rules by getting these coalitions in those parties that pull it in one direction or the other. Like The Tea Party has pretty clearly pulled the conservative, the GOP, to the right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example. Bernie pretty clearly pulled Hillary to the left. Like I mentioned TPP earlier, like that's a Bernie that's a Bernie phenomenon. Like if it was just fifteen dollar minimum wage, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, she went from twelve bucks to fifteen bucks, all this stuff. Um, she's adopted parts of his college plan. And again, you can call that cynical and say she's selling out to get his voters, but like if you're one of his voters and you want to affect change and the effect the change you want to affect is a higher minimum wage and free college, like you kind of won, right? Um, and so I would say that those people who are Bernie heads, like, yeah, be frustrated, be angry, and then just keep fighting for, you know, his candidates and, and the party, keep fighting for his platform and you will move it. I think personally to see how far Hillary's come and the, the party platform has come in just the last like eight months is pretty remarkable. Like if you have that kind of movement over, um, five years or a decade, it's going to really move things. 
Now, let's say Trump were not in the picture. Yeah. And we were just talking about like it was a, you know, a Romney or a Rubio or a whatever on the other. Yeah, Ted Cruz, whatever. Yeah. And let's say a voter was like, you know, I don't mind having a Republican president. What I'd really like to do is level the playing field for future nominees. And I want to move. I want to use my vote to move away from a two party system. Is that reasonable? I don't know if, if you want to move away from a two-party system, I don't think that your vote for the presidency being for someone that you don't like or someone who doesn't really care for your interests is the best way to do it. I think that if you want to make that system, you should advocate for getting rid of the, the electoral college or okay. moving towards what's called ranked choice voting, where you can vote for like your first choice, second choice, third choice, yeah. um, versus being just binomial yes or no. Um, those things are much more likely to lead to like a more diverse electorate and a more diverse government than just sitting out the big parties. Cause again, like it would take a sea change to move, you know, more than half of the Democrats to some new left party or the conservatives to a new right party. It's virtually impossible. And so I think that pulling the party itself for now is your best bet. And then maybe you change the rules, change campaign finance reform, change the voting system, change the districting laws, whatever it is, uh, maybe that will help you get there. Okay, so that brings us to Bernie. Now, Bernie has not advocated that his supporters leave the Democratic Party. He right. has advocate. He has decided to do what you're talking about, which is change the party from within. What does it say about Bernie that he's not changed his course on this? He has kept his endorsement of Hillary strong, and his criticism of Trump is still firebrand. Well, I think he's smart. Like, so there's two things here. One is like would Bernie rather have Trump or Clinton? And one is what does Bernie want to do to get his movement as far as it can while he's still around? He's like, oh, 70, that's an interesting you know, way to 74 it, years yeah. old. They're two different questions entirely on the Trump question. My favorite tweet on this was, you know, if you came to a restaurant and you wanted chicken nuggets and they offered you a grilled chicken sandwich, you'd be a little disappointed. Uh, that's like, you know, Bernie voters getting Hillary. But if your other option was like a poop sandwich, you would gladly eat the grilled chicken, right? <laughs> that makes and me so, think of Spinal Tap. Yeah, and so and so it's like, you know, Bernie recognizes that, like, on... Like, if you take the kind of, like, you know, who should you vote for a quiz or whatever, and you say, I want a high minimum wage, and I want national health care, and I want all this stuff. And these are things I believe in. Climate change reform. You know, I got, like, 97% for one of them, and, like, 94% for the other. And then I got 14% for Trump, okay? So, like... You have to decide, like, am I going to vote for someone that I agree with 14% of the time, just despite the person that I agree with almost all the time to change the rules? I generally think that's why Bernie is saying, look, guys, like, I don't agree with Hillary on everything, but, like, we are thematically similar. We are both into, you know, taxing the rich, expanding middle class through social programs, through wage increases. You know, I do think she'll do some level of Wall Street reform. Like, this is, this is better than nothing. It's actually positive. And our party will be in power. And, like, Bernie will become, the if they win the Senate, he'll become the head of the banking committee. Yeah. So, like, you know, he has a personal interest there. And also, like, for him, I think, to have his movement succeed, this is where I think being in good standing of the party matters. Like, he's now, he is now the second, I think, most powerful voice in the entire party behind Hillary herself. And so... In 2018, 2020, 2022, like the Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, Tom Perez, like the kind of progressive liberal wing can become a real counterweight to the kind of centrist, hawkish Clinton wing of the party in effect real change. So he knows that his bread is buttered inside the party uh, long term, and he knows that this election is between, you know, a grilled chicken sandwich and a poop sandwich from his point of view. And so he'll have the grilled chicken uh, even if there are no nuggets available. You're not allowed to say poop sandwich anymore. <laughs> Let's use Bernie. The, the tweet, as the tweet a... was actually a poop sandwich with shards of glass in it, but I tried to keep it PG. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So transitioning, Trump uses Bernie a lot and tries to use him as an example that the system is rigged. But let's talk about the election itself being rigged. Yeah. What are the things that Trump is saying? What are his claims about the system being rigged? Because there's more than one. Yeah, so there's two kind of rigs, riggings involved here. There's like the literal rigging of the election, which is like voter fraud. And then there is kind of like the vast, grand, globalist, elitist conspiracy against him. Basically, this is like the everyone against me conspiracy. 
So, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, all the public polling firms, they're all out there to screw me over because I am the only guy speaking truth to power. So if you are a hardcore Trump believer and you mostly read conservative news, you might believe this. I personally view this as uh, a narcissist who knows he's losing but cannot reconcile losing with his self-image of being someone who never loses. And so he must find like a scapegoat. But the claim is like, so New York Times, you know, releases these testimonies of like two women who claim that he groped them or in other, some other way he sexually assaulted them, as does BuzzFeed, as does a local news channel in Florida, as does uh, The Guardian. And so Trump says, this, this stuff isn't true. These are lies. They're unproven. This is all part of the grand scheme to stop me. And in order to account for the fact that women have come forward from four or five separate media outlets, he has to then posit a conspiracy between all of those media outlets. Well, if they're if they're in direct coordination, what we call on the game theory, tacit coordination isn't really relevant. It's like they all want the same thing, so they're all going to okay. work towards that aims. And you know what they want is for me to lose to keep the established you know um, oligarchy in place. And so he's speaking to his like generally disaffected, gen- generally anti-globalist base um, in the most kind of like fear-inducing radical terms possible. Um, and also he's deflecting blame for any loss, right? So like what he's doing is saying like, there's no scenario where I lose that's legitimate. And it's the classic, like a buddy of mine, when I say it's like heads, I win, lose, you cheated. Right. So like <laughs> I, I never lose just you cheat or I won. Um, yeah. it's like the, well, that fan who watches sports and like every loss is like, Oh, the ref screwed us. Every right, win is like, right. we were the best. It's like, no, sometimes you just lose, man. And the fact that look, some li- some media is more liberal. New York Times is more liberal than it is conservative. So is Washington Post. So is Buzzfeed. Whatever, it plays into that that narrative. And you know the the far like the conservative radio and Breitbart, like they've been stoking the kind of like you can't listen to any mainstream media fears for so long that when the candidate says it's all a conspiracy, some people believe that it's just a flat out series of lies, even if. You know, as you mentioned before on other forums, and I have too, like, yes, they lean left, but, like, they are also fact-based, fact-checking organizations that, like, when they report the news versus, like, opinion, they tend to report the truth. Um, They may slant it a bit one way or the other, but, like, those, those events tend to have actually happened as far as, like, empirically provable historical events. Now, there's a big wrench in his media bias conspiracy, and that wrench takes the names of Dallas Morning News, the... Arizona Republic, the National Review, Christianity Today, all of these clearly right-leaning news sources who have come out and endorsed Hillary Clinton or said, do not vote for Trump, USA Today, who has never endorsed a candidate before. Right. Uh, These and and there are stories now about the backlash for, you know, the Arizona Republic, for instance, death threats, loss of subscriptions. How does a Trump supporter explain that data? Oh, it's not hard. Uh, this actually plays right into that narrative. So if I put on my right wing, you know, hat from when I was 19 years old, if you take the view that all the media is simply run by rich people, and at the end of the day, whether they're Democratic or Republican, the real party of the rich is the rich guy party. You view this as like, you know, it's not about pushing conservative views or liberal views. It's about I, Donald Trump, want to take down those who are in power and empower the people. And they don't want that because they are the big, bad, like they're the man. So whether they're the conservative Arizona Republic or they're the liberal, you know, whatever it is, Atlantic, they're all part of this, like, they're just part of kind of the entrenched powers. And so this is not about right or left. It's about entrenched powers versus um, disaffected powers. And so we, the disaffected, have a grievance against all of them. So it plays so it plays right into his hands. Now, what about the rigging that Trump is claiming about actual polling places? What tell yeah. me the real history of voter fraud in America? When has it actually happened? So the the snarky answer is that there is no real history of voter fraud in America. <laughs> um, okay, give me the less snarky answer. <laughs> the the less snarky answer is look, there there have been eras in in certain states in the past, especially states that have what I call machine politics, like Chicago or West Texas, where you'd have some level of ballot fraud, do like dead people still being on the voter rolls, voting by mail somehow. So there has been events over the course of time where certain areas had. Uh, you know, more voters than were registered, but it's not actually possible. 
And, and that's, that exists. Um, that all happened during a very different news media era, you know, 1960 or before. And so I think in the modern era, there's not much um, indication of that happening hardly at all. A recent massive comprehensive study of elector, uh, voter fraud found uh, 31 confirmed cases out of over a billion votes cast um, wow. in, in the last you know, decade or so of elections. And this is voter fraud, which is like somebody voting as somebody else or somebody voting in the wrong district in, in order to like, you know, affect that, that election by like, if I voted in Florida, right, um, versus California, yeah. my vote is functionally useless. So I just did some math, by the way, the, the percentage of voter fraud based on that comprehensive study is 0.000031% of yeah. votes are fraudulent. And if, but now I put on my, my right wing hat, like, well, yeah, you found 31, but like how many didn't you find? Right. Or like, what's your burden of proof to have proven it happened? Um, and there's all these stories sure. out there. They kind of get, they flow around. However, the, the real truth and like, you know, it's, this makes it a part of the issue that's frustrating is like, I would take the position as do many people that the, the boogeyman of voter fraud was really invented to justify voter ID laws. And like the short version of that for your listeners is that voter ID laws are states that require like a driver's license or some kind of picture ID to confirm you are who you say you are when you vote, which seems reasonable, except that there are large portions of the population, probably people unlike you or I, who are generally either very old or very young, who are generally poor, who are generally living a much different life than my sort of like driver's licensed, privileged white male, white color life, who don't have, they don't have IDs. And so the voter ID law becomes effectively a poll tax. So you have to go to the DMV and wait for four hours and miss eight hours of paid hourly work and get daycare for a day um, or whatever to just to be able to vote. And it's unproven time and time again that it disenfranchises young voters and minorities and seniors, all of whom vote generally Democratic. And that's why these laws almost exclusively exist in countries run by Republicans. Um, And there have been like off the record hot mic moments. They've been caught saying things like, you know, voter ID will deliver the state to us. And so I would argue, and some will differ, that really election fraud is kind of a solu- is a is a solution looking for a problem so it, it's happened but like i mean right now the polls are showing trump behind nationally from four to seven percent okay so 130 million people voted in 2012 so that means he's behind by roughly seven million votes okay so if you were going to fraudulently turn this election and you assume the polls are roughly accurate that means somehow seven out of 130 million people have to vote illegally. That's one in every like 25 people, which is just s- staggering, right? And so the idea that this election in particular could turn, I think is pretty unlikely. Uh, the most famous case of an alleged stolen election is 1960, which is Kennedy Nixon. That turned by 40,000 votes in one state and by like 78,000 in different ones. So we're talking, I mean, a razor thin margins. Uh, Kennedy won the national vote by like 0.1%. And so the idea that that is analogous to this Trump campaign, where, again, polls are polls, they're not, they're not votes, but they are indicative. I mean, Trump is currently polling with the lowest general number, like 39% on a four-way race, the seventh lowest number in modern history, right? So the idea that this would become a, a fraud election would take an enormous effort with thousands or actually millions of people we should have, you know, paper trails for WikiLeaks to acquire through hacking and like right. guerrilla journalists taking videos at the secret meetings. Like the idea would happen with no real proof to me, it just completely is beyond belief. Like not even kind of unbelievable. It's like crazy pants, unbelievable to the point where I believe the whole voter fraud argument is not about actual fraud. It's about setting up the next chapter of Trumpism, which is like this kind of grievance politics continued. Now, the same thinking, briefly to go back to Bernie and Hillary, I mean, she won by millions of votes as well, correct? Yeah. So the claim that the DNC was in bed with Hillary has seemed to be proven true, at least on a decent a decent amount. They were biased, yes. But the there was like stories about, oh, the polls in Arizona and, you know, these aren't open long enough and it's keeping Bernie voters away you're just not going to get to 3 million votes with that. Generally, yeah. And I think if it had been closer on the vote, that Bernie would have fought harder. But just like 
when Nixon, so, so here's like a good lesson. So when Nixon lost, because he lost one of the states by like 78,000 people, they're like, well, the margin's so big, we're not going to fight it and risk losing faith in our democracy, right? Over 78,000 yeah. votes. Now we're talking about 10 million votes um, or 5 million votes. So we're talking 100 times that. But yes, yeah, so if Bernie had lost by a, a small handful, I think they would have felt it was legitimately t- legit taken from them. I think that as it stands, the ballot places closing early in Arizona or like some mail ballots not not going to that place didn't kill him. It's more likely if if something did Bernie in, like if there was a path that he would have won in some hypothetical world, I think that that path would have been more media exposure, better debate times, to let his movement catch fire. It's not going to be sure. about the handful of voters that got screwed over. So let's talk about some of the things that Trump has been saying recently to his supporters, especially in the last couple of weeks at rallies and also online on Twitter, asking them to vote and then going to, quote, other polling places yep. to stand around and, quote, make sure everything is on the up and up. What is he talking about there? I mean, I think the cynical interpretation is that he is soaking sort of race based fears in a different way. OK, why do you say that? Well, a lot of these statements come right after some kind of like talk about immigrants taking our country and, and, you know, there have been statements like, you know, the, there's a meme going around, like the Clintons wanted to open the borders because then illegals could vote for her in Arizona and turn the state blue, whatever. So, um, or in general, like whether it's race-based or not, like the, the up and up thing is a, is a call to action based on this presumption of voter fraud that I mentioned earlier. Now, how do you identify a fraudulent voter? I'm guessing it relies upon the intuition of the person there. And in general, if you're a person who's at a Trump rally and is so angry that you're worried that the election's being stolen, you're probably going to look for people who don't look like you, who don't look like your kind of voter. So I would guess whether it's you know explicitly race-based or is sort of like a dog whistle, it sure seems like that's what you're going to have happen. Um, there were some interviews done last week and like there's anecdotal and they're not even that fair. I don't love when you call out like the, I talked to some guy at a rally and he said, yeah, this, some but, like, single supporter said this. Yeah. That, that's yeah, a little like, bit unfair. You know, if you look like a Syrian or, or whatever, like I'll be watching you. It's like, first of all, like, what does a Syrian even look like? You know, and how, yeah. how many of them live in your district? But yeah, so like there, there is this call to action to, and I actually signed up on the Trump web ad like to go be a, p- a poll watcher i clicked the you link did? yeah it was like it was like click here to to make sure you don't ring election i was like i want i want to see well i want to just like see the instructions because yeah yeah and we can talk about this like being a poll watcher is a very serious very important job but it is nothing like what they are describing what they are describing as being what i'll call a poll vigilante um that's very different from being a poll watcher or election observer which is a very bureaucratic pro-voter kind of boring job it generally has to do with like making sure everyone gets a chance to cast their vote and then if there's a question that vote can be challenged later on procedural grounds or whatever yeah what he's calling for is to basically stop folks from voting who don't look like they belong there and that's a very very different that is not voter monitoring that is voter intimidation which is a felony intimidation of voters is horrible in any direction right like i don't believe in I don't believe in disenfranchising voters. I don't believe in, you know, intim- intimidating them. I don't believe in short polling hours. Like, you should want, like, everyone to vote with long voting hours and open voter rolls. Like, that's, if you believe in choosing the candidate that everyone wants to choose, that's how you should approach things. Yeah, you need to let as many people as possible yeah. choose that candidate. And that goes that goes towards populism, <clears throat> even, right? If yeah. The, if the real people don't believe the media and don't want want the, what they're being sold, let them vote and let them choose the thing that they really want. Yeah, totally. He is whistling the dog whistle pretty hardcore here. Like he's saying one thing that sounds appropriate, but like it'll be interpreted in a certain way by the listeners. Yeah. So like voter, voter observation is not skulking around a polling place, looking at people menacingly or like walking up to somebody and being like, do you live here? It is not, carrying a gun in public, even in an open carry state that like just to make sure that everyone knows like that you mean business. Like voter observation is like really boring stuff. Um, in fact, a friend of mine leads a major voting rights advocacy group here in California um, and wrote an article on the Huffington Post last month 
about what it really means to be a voter, uh, a voting, a polling observer. And like, it means carrying clipboard and taking notes and making sure everyone has the ballot in their natural language and they can file the provisional vote if they don't have the right registration card, whatever it is. Um, it is not, it is not by any means being the voting police. It is the opposite. It is being the voter advocate police. And then there's plenty of lawyers mm. and judges and juries and lawsuits to file afterwards if the election is so close that like a handful of ballots either way will choose it. Wow. Okay. So it's looking like he's going to lose, right? By almost any account at this point. Yeah. If the polls are accurate and like, you never know if the polls are going to be accurate, but like, I sure feel like they're the best guess we have. So if the polls are accurate, he will not win. That is correct. Which of course, everyone still go vote. Yeah. But what (laughs) are we worried about? What do you expect to happen the night of the eighth? if he loses or the next day or the next week. Yeah. Well, so this is like, I'm pretty vigorously anti-Trump. And so if you're pro-Trump, I apologize, but just know it's got nothing to do with you or your concerns or his policies. Like, I just feel like this is what I saw coming all along. Um, where if he begins to lose, he'll blame the system and he will try to reduce the legitimacy of our election process. And that hurts the country. The same way that frankly, birtherism was a way to delegitimize the president. Right? It wasn't about, proving anything it's not like you don't think that trump was laying awake at night genuinely worried that obama might not have been born in america no i think it was all about scoring points and creating division that he could then reroute to his own purposes and he it worked very well for him so if he loses and he claims it was rigged you will have some segment of the population who believes it and I don't know what happens next. Like you'll have again these quotes from some rally person saying, like, I'm ready for armed revolution. Like, that's unfair to quote them, I think. Like that could be one guy to ten thousand. And frankly, yeah. America has always had people who are ready for armed revolution. That's not new. So I think if he loses and he doesn't concede willingly, and I don't think he would go nicely into the dark. Um, I think there will be some segment of the population who believes it was uh, unfair and rigged. And I don't know what they'll do. I don't know if they will, you know, boycott things or if they'll rally or if we'll have like sporadic violence. I sure hope not. Or, or they'll just like tune out the election and tune in next time with another candidate like that. I think the onus will be really on the Republican Party elders to say, you know, hey, look, if you believe me, if you believe a word that I say, just know, like, we lost fair and square, right? Um, the same way Al Gore did in 2000, same way Nixon did in 1960. Like, at some point, it has to be the loser who creates the legitimacy. The winner cannot say, I won and it was legit, right? It has to be the loser saying, I lost, and that's how it goes. Um, and so I th- my expectation is that the longer this rhetoric goes on about rigged elections, I think we're going to have some kind of backroom planning by Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, the Bush family, all these people who are conservative, but also like first and foremost want to protect the Republic to basically the day after the election say, look guys, like we know you're frustrated and you have real, real concerns and our party will choose to help those and we will work with you. That said, like this is the president, like let's not pretend this was some kind of like coup of this global elite. And, you know, I'm not sure everyone buys that, but as long as it's a a 90% of the country or more, like, you can move on. I I do feel like, again, like, I'm sorry to, like, sound like I'm harping on Trump here, but, like, I think that he's done major generational damage to our faith in our process. And that's why, even more than on a policy level or, like, you know, the groping whatever, like, that's what I find so abhorrent about him. And so that will take some time to walk back. And it'll have to be the leaders of the party who are still standing when all this thing uh, wraps up. Again, if he loses, if he wins, you know, who knows? And the, the irony of all this rig talk is that if we take the assumption that polls are generally accurate, right, which I tend to believe is true, um, they've been proven right in prior elections. If he wins and he moves and he was polling, you know, down by five, six, seven, eight points the night before, that is frankly a better argument for voter fraud than if he loses, right? Like, yeah. You know, did the Russians hack the voting machines? Like, I'm not a conspiracy guy, but like, right. I, I'll be honest, if, if, if he wins like a, a, a real majority and the polls are as bad for him on that day as they are today, I yeah. will want to see uh, some kind of just making sure the Russians didn't hack like half of Ohio. Right. Um, right. I'm not going to go out there and say it was all rigged or like, you know, claim, claim revolution. But, you know, like in general, like exit polling should match 
uh, the ballots and the exit polling should match the pre pre polls. Um, yeah. because like these things are generally like empirically testable. I mean, know who most voters are, but, uh, I don't know what happens the day after. I believe it's gotta be some kind of concerted effort to just create faith in our system because really what he's undermining is not Hillary. He's undermining our faith in the election process. And what you're saying is like, look, if the polls show he's down five points, if the exit polls show that he loses and then he loses, that's not there's not a lot of reason to believe that was rigged. But if all of those things happen and then he wins, then it's like, OK, like something is weird here. Yeah. And you can find a structural flaw in the polling. Like maybe the silent majority the so-called silent majority was like the kind of the white working class voter base. Like maybe they all turn out. Right. Like one thing that most folks don't know is like if you just change the turnout numbers by like four percent. Like so if the average registered white non-college voter votes, uh, you know, 84% of the time, but then like 91% show up, that swings entire states. Like it, it's actually a pretty fickle um, organism, like the, the presumed mm. weight of the electoral college. Um, yeah. so, so like you can have real tsunamis that really happen, but if like none of the evidence is there, it gets a little funky. And you would expect to see that in the exit polls, at least people who yeah. go and then coming and saying, I voted for Trump. Yeah, and they and even if they don't say like who did you vote for, you say like what's your demographic? Oh, well, I'm white, uh, high school degree, no college degree, and I earn right. less than eighty grand a year. You could go, oh wow, a bunch more people in that demographic yeah. came out this like, time, right? Okay. Like the reality of modern electoral politics is like you may feel like picking to vote, who to vote for, is like the sacred act that you have, and that it is. I have bad news for you, dear listener. The campaigns know who you're voting for because they look at your Facebook searches, they look at your web traffic, they look at your probably your text messages for all I know. And like, they know with 90% accuracy who you'll vote for before you do. And so they just want to get you there. So they, so, so by your type, your, you know, race, education, uh, salary and religious status, um, and your sex, they can basically pinpoint who you're going to vote for. And so like, if we know that, you know, this many, uh, evangelical black Christians age 19 to 28 voted, we can say, they probably split like 68 for Hillary and 17 for Trump and 14 for a third party and that kind of stuff with pretty good accuracy. And collectively, that gives us very good ways to estimate the turnout model. And that's why, you know, 538 called the last election basically spot on in every single state, um, as did uh, the guys at Princeton, as did other groups that do this. So, yeah, I'm not going to say like, I don't, let's not get too into the role of like the, the Russians steal the election. I think it's pretty fanciful. Um, but it's like, we have evidence on who folks are voting for. And so the only reason you believe it was stolen is if you believe this kind of massive, like the media plus the liberal elites, plus the conservative elites, plus the wall street guys, like they're all in it together. That's, that does seem really hard to stomach, especially with all the poll data. Like why, if, how do you explain that those people predicted previous elections how do you explain yeah. that the polls were good that time and they won't be good this time well and like the same people that i was railing on earlier passing voter id laws these sort of conservative election officials in certain states almost to a to a person they're in swing states they're in pennsylvania they're in virginia they're in ohio they're in wisconsin and so like these are republican officials who run elections which i am and i'm saying they are disenfranchising liberals to let the Republican win. So to then say that those same officials will rig it against the Republican is an even greater leap of faith. Um, oh, wow. You would, have, yeah. you would have a little more, and again, it's going to be silly in my opinion, but like you'd have a little more like to stand on if you were a liberal, like Clinton saying this, because like the head of elections in Florida and Ohio and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, like they actually are Republicans. Like they want generally their guy to win and so this is why trump has to declare war not only on liberalism but also on his own party saying like the party is trying to stop him because like the guys who run the elections in those states are from his party and so he would only lose if the conspiracy is literally everybody but him okay last question of this lightning round can you just speak a little bit about how unprecedented the current gop civil war is between trump and the rest of the party uh it's very unprecedented like it's, <laughs> i don't i don't know how to say it like we've never seen something like this i mean so like in the primary i was telling everyone i was like hey, well, first can you give us give us a few examples in case people have yeah been so that like much attention. So, so in the in the, well in this in this election um uh, in like the last month well just like 
So, so, so now um, Trump is aggrieved because he believes that the party apparatus is not supporting him to the full extent. So, like, Paul Ryan has been tepid in his endorsement, but has endorsed him. Uh, John McCain pulled his endorsement. And a whole host of, like, uh, you know, state and, and Senate people have pulled their endorsements to him after these groping allegations, after his comments on race. They've all said, like, that's it. It's enough. This is too much. I'm out. And so he said, well, you know, Paul Ryan's never won anything before. He should focus on fixing trade, not attacking me. And John McCain is a loser. I'm glad that the shackles are off because I can run things my way. I don't have to do things their way. And so we've had historically contentious elections. In modern history, kind of like post-1950, it was Goldwater um, in 1968, I think. And it was, you know, George Wallace uh, after that. So we had like one hyper-conservative, one sort of hyper-liberal and they had, they had schisms in their party, and they had really knockdown, drag-out battles, kind of like the Bernie thing on steroids. And sometimes they would leave certain voters disaffected. But like to have a candidate just like carpet-bombing his party's leadership is just unheard of. And in the modern media era, where he has a Twitter account and a Facebook account, like it's, his bullhorn is also much louder. So like you yeah. know, I'm sure that there were days in the... In the 80s where someone might say like hey guys like you're not giving me the love that i want what the hell but it was in like some smoke-filled room or in some newspaper article now he can have a thought at four in the morning and in one second 25 million people see it on facebook and twitter right wow and so like he can just kind of go nuclear on his own i've never seen anything like it i mean like the american party system has had various schisms over time like the wigs died out and the the Lincoln era Republicans were actually like the liberal new guys and, and the, so like the parties flipped over time, like left, right, whatever. Like you've had some of these like general schematic shifts on points of view, but the full out just kind of like intra-party warfare. Like I haven't seen it in my lifetime, certainly. And I can't even recall it in the last hundred years. So like probably nobody alive in America has seen a war for a party <laughs> like what's going to happen here. Like Again, we've had like ideological battles, especially like civil rights yeah. and a race, like the Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats flipped. It's never been like this overt and personal. And I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, that seems to be kind of a trademark of the campaign. It is, it is historic. And I, I absolutely believe that like when our, when we're old and gray, our grandkids will ask us like, were you around for the Trump campaign? And they'll say, I'll say yes. And they'll say, what was it like? And I'll say, look at these 48 Facebook posts, you know, like, here's my, here's my yeah. on the record thoughts on that era, because I do believe this is unquestionably historic. And, and that coming civil war, if I put on my conservative hat again, because I actually do, I actually do harbor great affection for like a sort of standard conservative party, the party of George Bush, the senior, um, for example, as my, I like him a lot. I have no idea how that battle will end. I don't know if it, the party will just die and they'll have to make a new party that's like kind of the remaining old school conservatives and then Trumpism becomes the new Republican Party. Um, I don't know if it is a, a civil war that lasts, you know, a year and then it's kind of snuffed out or if it takes a decade to resolve itself. It's going to be really interesting. And, and sadly, uh, in so much as the d debate is not around ideas, but is around like, the legitimacy of our institutions, it's probably going to be the debate that hurts the country a little bit. Um, yeah. And, you know, our institutions should be up to some rigor and they should be held up to the light. So that's good. But I, I do believe that there is, you know, five to 10% of the country right now who are getting all their news from people that have a massive agenda to feed this kind of conspiratorial, rigged, globalist narrative, which I, I don't think it helps those people. Like they're being sold a bill of goods. And I don't think it helps anybody except for those who are selling the conspiracy for $10 a month. Man. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for being here. People can find more about you. They can listen to you. You did an episode on Pastor With No Answers. I did. And you also are on Twitter as the Robbie Evans. Yep. T-H-E-R-O-B-B-I-E-E-V-A-N-S. That is correct. Anything else you want people to know? No, just if you want to uh, ask more questions, you can find me on Twitter. You can see my thoughts on politics and on um, the NFL, basically. <laughs> Those are my two wheelhouses. All right, dude. Well, thank you for being a part of this here, doing this lightning round. Hopefully it's been helpful for everybody listening. See you later, man. Yep. Bye, guys.
Thank you guys for listening and for putting up with the kind of shackled together new format for this emergency episode. Just a reminder that as usual, you can find me on Twitter at Dan K-O-C-H. You can find us at depolarizedpodcast.com. You can email follow-up questions to depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the Facebook discussion group, Depolarized Podcast Facebook discussion group, and keep that conversation going. And we'll see you Monday morning for a new episode. Thank you.